Leave it to Randy to put his best song right before I come up here. <laughs> uh, thank you guys. That was amazing. Uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for the gift of music to worship you with. And uh, you have blessed us richly at Christ's community with that. We thank you for that. And we thank you for the gift of your word. And we can open this book and read stories from thousands of years ago and still hear you speaking still hear you encouraging, strengthening, and caring for us. So Father, we pray as we open your word this morning, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive from you. And God, use me uh, as your instrument this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, have you ever caught yourself negotiating with God? You ever done that before? Yeah. That, you know, I'll promise I'll go to church more often, God, if you do this, if you just help me get this project done or the speech written or the proposal approved, and I'll give you something in return. You've never done that, right? You've never, ever done that. I think we've all, I think we've all done that. I think we've all had moments uh, where, like, Wendell Scott, in the end, we do that. Has anybody seen the movie The End? Anybody? I don't know why I've seen this movie. It's from 1978. Um, Starring Burt Reynolds, right? I have no idea why I've seen this movie, but there's this one scene uh, that all, <laughs> always stands out to me. I always think of it uh, when I think about this theme of negotiating with God. And so Burt Reynolds, he's in the ocean. He's far from shore. He's trying to swim back. He doesn't think he's going to make it. He doesn't think he has the energy. So he does what anyone would do. He starts to pray. Um, and he's kind of, you know, it's, a, it's him swimming, and there's this voiceover of him praying. He says, God, if you help me make it, I will obey the Ten Commandments, every single one. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt, God, I'm going to learn the Ten Commandments, and then I'm going to obey <laughs> the Ten Commandments. And he says, God, I'll give you 50% of my income, talking gross, God, not net, talking gross, 50%. <laughs> and he keeps going on and on like this until he gets close enough to shore, and he thinks, I, I can, I think I'm going to make it. So he starts thanking God, God, thank you, you won't regret this, thank you, I'm going to, I'm going to give you that 10% we talked about. As soon as I get there, we've all played that game with God. We've all said, God, if you do this, then I will do that. Which is, in the, even in the moment to us, is funny. Because we know the God who made everything doesn't need anything from me. We know that. At the same time, though, and perhaps more importantly, this is also a very, a very dangerous game to play. And I've seen this kind of basic prayer uh, this God, if you do this prayer, destroy people's faith. Because when we pray to God to get something that we really, really want, and we are desperate enough to try to bribe him for it, it means that God is only good when he complies with my needs, my wants, and my desires. And if he fails to come through, or refuses to come through, <laughs> On whatever it is that I want, he ceases to be good. But that kind of faith, that God, if you do this faith, is not what we learn in the book of Daniel. Okay, the lesson of our story this morning in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, is not that God always fixes it and makes it right in this life. That's not what we learn. We've been talking about living in exile when things are out of control and we don't know what God is up to. We don't know why he's allowing things to happen that, that he's allowing. He do, we don't feel like he's protecting us. What do we do? And, and one of the most important faith lessons we can learn as believers in exile in a culture 
that's increasingly skeptical of faith and perhaps even hostile to it is this. It's this lesson. It's that even if God doesn't come through, even if He doesn't, He is still God, He is still good, and He is still in control. And in our culture and world, if the church is going to survive exile like Daniel and his friends do, we need this kind of even-if faith. Even-if. So let's take a look. Daniel chapter 3. Um, turn there now if you brought your Bible with you. Just a quick recap of where we've been the last couple of weeks in this series. Daniel is the true story uh, of a Jewish man uh, back in the 6th century uh, B.C., And he was removed forcibly from his home in Judah by his enemies, the Babylonians, and taken to Babylon uh, along with his three friends, as well as many others, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. We know them normally by their Babylonian names, which they're given once they arrive, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they uh, learn how to live. Their story is learning how to live in a culture that is hostile to them, that's opposed to them. And in many ways, really only had two options for them. You can either assimilate and become a Babylonian, or we'll destroy you in the process. And we've been learning from their example along the way of how to be wise and winsome in this hostile and skeptical culture, and when and where to draw lines of what we can and cannot do in, in, in our culture, how to seize control, uh, opportunities as God gives them to be a faithful witness to his power and goodness. And up to this point, if you've been with us, Daniel and his friends, they've always found a way out, whether it was the food at the king's table or interpreting the dream for the king at the last possible minute, they've always found a way out of the jam to come. But in chapter three, Daniel's three friends, they find themselves in many ways for the first time with their back against the wall. No way out. And it starts in the plains of Dura. In Daniel chapter 3, this is one of the many parts of Nebuchadnezzar's vast empire, Babylonian empire. King Nebuchadnezzar, he is the ruler of the Babylonian empire. It's the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. And he has decided at the beginning of the story that owning everything and everyone that his eye can see is not enough. He decides, I need a symbol, I need a sign, I need something to communicate to the entire world that I and I alone am the most powerful human being who has ever lived. So you see, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, he decides, I'm going to make an image of gold, 90 feet high, on the flattest part of my empire, the plains of Dura, so that for miles and miles and miles, people can see this image. Now, we really don't know what the image was. Is it a Babylonian god who has the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar? Or did he just come out and own it and, and and make a statue of himself? We don't really know. Either way, this is the most expensive selfie in the history of humankind. (laughs) It's overlaid in gold, this image of himself. If you were here last week, you know Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, he had a dream from God uh, about the future of his kingdom. And there there was a statue in his dream, not unlike this one, with a golden head, but a silver torso and bronze thighs clay and iron feet. And and God said, these are the kingdoms to come after you. You're the head of gold. And then there's something to come after you. And and after that, and I I have to wonder, did did Nebuchadnezzar build an image of gold from head to foot thinking, "If if I do that, I can con God into letting my kingdom last forever? Is that part of what his motivation is? I don't know. But after he builds this thing, he decides, this thing is so special. I'm going to invite my entire government 
from every province throughout my empire to come and admire this with me. And it's like, yeah, this guy, this is the kind of guy who builds a statue to himself and then makes everyone come tell him how awesome it is. And I can only imagine how the RSVP read when he sent this out to his kingdom to come to this dedication event, right? Hey, you, we'd love to see you there. You can bring a plus one. If you don't come, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> With love, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, <laughs> I'm making fun of him, but to be fair, there's a, there is a real strategy to what he's doing. He knows that the strength of his empire, it rests on the, his ability to control the myriads of people and languages and cultures that he has conquered. They hate him. He knows that. They hate him, but they will fear him. And that fear will keep his empire together and strong and unified. So yeah, he's the worst, but he's not stupid. So he invites, as Daniel puts it, here's how Daniel writes in chapter 3, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. This is everybody. That's what Daniel's trying to get across. Everybody. This is the House, the Senate, the Pentagon, the FBI, the NSA, the alphabet soup of the Babylonian Empire is here. And Nebuchadnezzar, he gathers these thousands and thousands of people in the plains of Jura, and he says to them, when you hear the music play, fall down and worship the image I've made. And if you don't, I will throw you in an oven. I'll throw you in a furnace and you'll die. And no doubt there are furnaces all over the plain that were used to make this enormous image. So you know he's not bluffing. You can see exactly where you're going if you don't do this. Now, a lot of you know this story but I want you to put yourself in it for this moment. Okay, if you're here on this day, you're probably a foreigner. You're not a Babylonian. You're, you're part of a puppet government in your province designed to keep your people in line while Babylon robs you systematically of your freedom, your wealth, your religion, and your very identity with every tax and every law that's past, right? This is, and, and, and you know, this is your whole life now. It's not going to end. This is it. And then one day, your conqueror invites you to come worship his image, right? This is, the, this is the bully at school who takes your money and makes you say thank you when he's done writ large. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is. It's just salt in the wound. It's not enough that I've taken everything from you. You've got to like me for it too. And so sure enough, the, the, right, the music plays. This is how the story goes. The music plays. And like a reverse game of musical chairs, everybody falls down on their hands and knees, and they worship the image. Thousands and thousands of government officials who, in my mind, know, are going, are, they're, they're just going through the motions. They just want to get this over with so they can start the journey home and hopefully make it back in time for dinner. Everybody complies except for three. Three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's friends. And I have to imagine for them, they're thinking, okay, we can handle the name change. When they got to Babylon, they got new names. They're now named after Babylonian gods. We can handle fine. They can endure the Babylonian training to make them better citizens of Babylon. Fine. They could even handle giving their lives in service to the king, the very same king who destroyed their home and everything they loved about it and their, and their whole lives. And they've been, they've been promoted within his government 
but worshiping a false god, worshiping a human government, worshiping a human king, they could not do. This is their line in the sand. They say, nope, we will not do it. Now, they may be wondering that there's a safety in anonymity, right? Nebuchadnezzar, he's still in front of his, his image. He's way up front. There's thousands of people on the plane. It's like, who's going you know, to see us? What's the worst that could happen? Well, the worst that could happen, if you're Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, is you just happen to be by a group of Babylonians who absolutely hate you and despise you. And, and that's what happens. Remember, Daniel and his friends, they had, they had some success in Babylon by God's help. They'd been promoted in, in, in service. They, they were the top of their class at the training academy. Daniel interpreted the dream of the king when no one else in Babylon could. And because of that, was rewarded handsomely with a position. And, and you just got to imagine these native Babylonians thinking, these are foreigners. They are not like us. They will not eat our food. We've got to take them down a notch or two. And this is our moment. They, they did not fall down. This is it. So right after the dedication ceremony, they run up to the king and they begin to tattletale on the three. Just listen. I just want you to hear the ego stroking when they come to the king. Here's how they put it to him. O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. You remember them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or the golden image you have set up. What are you going to do about it? And Neb, he's mad. (laughs) He's mad when he hears this. So he calls these three in, and he gives them the ultimatum to end all ultimatums. He is is no doubt still, on the one hand, in front of this 90-foot image, and on the other hand, I'm sure close by is a, is a fiery furnace. He promised anyone who disobeyed would find themselves in. And he, he, so he, he gets them in front. It's him, the image, and the furnace. And he puts these three here and he says, listen, bow down right now. Just touch your knee to the floor and this is all over. It's done. No big deal. But if you don't, see this furnace over here, I'm going to throw you in there and you're going you're gonna to die a horrible death. Take a minute Think about it. Talk to each other. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, like I said, he is, he is not making a mountain out of a molehill here. His kingdom survives on one thing, submission, obedience. And this defiance, no matter how small it seems, he cannot let it go unpunished. He's got to show people who hate him and want him to see him dead that you don't have to like me, but you will obey me. This is not an option. And you can tell he wants this to work. I mean, he is the most powerful guy in the world at this time. If he had just thrown them in the furnace immediately, just on the rumor that they hadn't obeyed him, no one would have batted an eye. But he wants them to acquiesce. He wants to know, I can still force you and intimidate you into doing something you don't want to do. And frankly, he could care less if they actually, in their heart of hearts, acknowledge him or his gods. This is, this is, we often forget this. This is a pluralistic society. This Babylonian one that we're talking about, there were countless languages and nations and ethnic groups and religions and gods represented on the plane 
endure. Nebuchadnezzar is not saying to these three, hey, I want you to stop worshiping Yahweh and only worship my gods. He says, no, I love Yahweh. Yahweh, help me interpret my dream. You just got to worship mine too. Just a little bow the knee and a tip of the cap. That's all I'm asking. And not unlike today. It's very similar to today. The offense of these three is not that they worship God. It's not offensive. It's that they worship him alone. Only. In a pluralistic society, that is an offensive thing to do. They are saying to Nebuchadnezzar, our God alone is king. Your gods are false. And our God is more powerful than you are. In effect, that's what they're saying. And that's why Neb, he's so angry. But they don't need time to deliberate on this. They probably talked about it on their way up. On cue, they give one of the most courageous and faithful responses to power recorded in all of Scripture. Look at verse 16. I'm going to read the NIV here. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Did you catch that response? King, our God is so powerful, he could rescue us in a second from you. But frankly, even if he doesn't, we would rather die than worship your gods or this image. Anything but God alone. And Nebuchadnezzar, he, now, he is, now he's flipping out. Now he's really mad. And he's got to be thinking, I bent over backwards to give you a way out. I, just, I should have killed you ten minutes ago. So he stokes this fire seven times hotter than it already was. And if it was made, if this furnace was used to melt metal for this image, then it was already pretty hot. He calls his strongest guards to bind these three, to throw them into the furnace. And it's so hot, when the soldiers get to the top, they, they actually burn to death themselves, but not before they throw these three men to their death. And I'll stop there for a second, okay? Maybe you know the end of the story, maybe you don't. You know who for sure doesn't know the end of the story? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For all they know, as they tumble through the air, this is it. They're done. Their time on earth is over. So just put yourself in their place for a minute, okay? Sometimes we're, we're so familiar with stories like this, we don't put ourselves in it. So put yourself in it. You have lost everything already. Your home, your family, your language, your name, gone. You're in a foreign land with a bunch of people who at best, at best, want to ignore you. At worst, they want to destroy you and everything you stand for. And your job, your job in this new reality is to serve the king and the people who despise you because God has decided that this is the purpose of your whole life. He didn't ask you. You had no say in that. But you go along with it because you believe you believe God is good, that he's working things out for your best. And suddenly, in this moment, as you tumble to your death, because of your faith in God, how, much, how, how could you not wonder in that moment, God, don't I, did I earn anything better than this? After all I've done and endured and been through for you, this is my reward. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? 
God, why are you doing this? God, after everything we've done together, after everything I've been through, why this? Is this what I get for a life with you? It is so easy in exile to feel this way. It is so easy to think God owes us something because of what we've endured for him, but faith like that will not survive Babylon. It will not survive exile. Only even if faith can stand in front of a blazing furnace of fire and say, we will not serve your gods or worship your image. Even if God doesn't, we won't. And see, I used to think, as, as early in my, in my own faith, I used to think that real faith in God was trusting that because God can do something, that he will do it. God, if you can part the Red Sea, you can, then, you can cure my sick child, you can heal my best friend, you can get me that well-paying job, you can save this person, you can fix my financial problem, I mean, whatever it is, and everything I've just said is true. God can do all of those things and more, but it's not enough. It's not. In exile, saying God can is not enough. You've got to be able to say, even in the face of tremendous cost to you. God can, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, he is still God, and he is still good, and he is still in control. So what in your life, just take a minute, what in your life do you need to say, even if God doesn't too? What's in your life? Maybe you aren't ready to say that phrase out loud today. I totally get it. But name it. What is it? What are you holding God hostage over? God, if, if you don't, I'm gone. I'm done. What is it in your life if God took it away or something happened? You would walk away. What is it? What do you need to say even if to you see, these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they count the cost, they do the math, and they realize that the worst thing that can happen to them is not death. That is not the worst thing that can happen to them. The worst thing that can happen is to lose out on God, the giver of life. So they look at that and they say, even if. Can we do that? Even, even, even in the face of, of financial hardship or conflict or uncertainty or loss, can we say, even if, to that? We left our friends, if you remember, tumbling through the air. Nebuchadnezzar, um, being the psychopath that he was, decided, I'm going to go down to the bottom of the furnace so I can watch them die. Uh, there was probably an access door the bottom of this furnace with a, with a window in it so you could see what was happening. So he goes down there, he pulls up a chair and he, gra- he grabs popcorn. I don't know what he does, but he's sitting there. He wants, to, he wants the satisfaction of seeing his punishment fulfilled. So he's sitting down there and I love the way Daniel tells this. So it's like Nebuchadnezzar sits down and then he immediately shoots up and he runs over to the door and he begins looking in the window. And I, this is Andrew Jones's paraphrase, okay? I can just imagine him saying, um, guys, how, how many men did we throw into that furnace? And the, the soldiers are there, and they, they say, well, there was Shadrach, and there was Meshach, and there was Abednego. So three, three, O wise king. And he says, that's what I thought. So why in the world do I see four men walking in the furnace as if it's a Saturday stroll in the park, 
And one of them, one of these, is, does not look like a human being. Explain that. Now everybody runs over to the door, and they're looking in, and sure enough, everyone is alive, and they're walking around in the midst of the flames. Nebuchadnezzar opens the door. He calls out into the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Come out and come here. Notice he does not call the fourth person out to come meet him. <laughs> like I said, he's the worst, but he's not stupid. <laughs> now, er- people gather around, and they realize that these men, their clothes are fine, their hair is fine. They don't even smell like they were in a furnace. They don't even smell like smoke. It's like they were never there at all. And all the officials, here's how the story ends, all the officials that Nebuchadnezzar invited to this moment to witness his glory and power. All of them are now witnesses to the power and might and glory of the Most High God. That's how the story ends. And even Nebuchadnezzar has to admit it. Here's what he says. Here's how he ends. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. That's the end of the story. So what's our observation here? What do we learn? What we learn, even in faith, is our only hope in Babylon. It's our only hope. But not because these three live. Not because these three make it. You see, it's so easy to read a story like this and say, what a triumph, what a victory, what a promise. If I can just have even if faith, God will protect me from harm and from the furnaces of life. And he might, but he might not. That's the lesson of the story. Not that he can, but that he might not. And be honest. This has never happened to you. You've never been rescued from a fiery furnace. I would know that by now, I think, if that had happened to you. You'd have told me by now. And be honest again. This has not happened. This is not the story for most of God's people throughout human history. It continues to not be the story for believers all over the world today. They are ostracized and condemned and persecuted and killed every day. There are people all over the world with an even-if faith who are thrown into the furnace, but they are not rescued in this life. So, so okay, Andrew, what is our hope then? You know who answers that question for us? Our hope in this story? Do you know who actually answers this question? It's really surprising. It's, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Did you, did you notice what he says at the end? He says, for there is no other God who can rescue in this way. Did you catch that? In this way. What did he see? What is he talking about in this way? He saw what he describes as, as, as one like a son of the gods in the furnace. How did he know that? We don't really know. How did he know Somehow, in the midst of a, of a furnace seven times hotter than normal, there was a being in there who shone brighter than that. And he knew it. He didn't know who it was, but he saw it. Now, throughout the Bible, there's this, there, there, there are messengers from God. 
angels. Angel means messenger. They're messengers from God all throughout the Bible. But in the Old Testament, there's this, there's this figure who shows up every now and again. He is called the angel, the messenger of God, the Lord. He shows up with Moses at the burning bush. He shows up with Joshua when he's about to enter the land. And he's not like a normal angel, whatever a normal angel is. He's not like a normal angel. Because when he speaks, when he speaks, the Bible says, and the Lord said. See, most angels say, the Lord told me to tell you. This one doesn't. And when people fall down and cower in front and worship in front of a normal angel, they say, no, 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 no. I am a creature just like you. Get up, worship God alone. It's all over the, you'll see that every time, except with this one. He receives worship. This same figure, I think, is the one in the furnace in the story. And then you've got to ask yourself the question, who else in the Bible is from God and is God? Is there anyone else? There's only one. It's Jesus. It's Jesus in the, it's a pre-incarnate Jesus in the flames with his people. Daniel didn't know that. He didn't even try to explain what this is. His friends, I don't think, knew. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know. But on this side of the New Testament, we do. Have you ever read this story? And it's one, a lot of you, it's the classic Sunday school story. Have you ever read this story? Or even just in hearing it today, have you ever read it and wondered of all the ways God could have saved these three? Of all the ways, why did he do it like this? Why would God enter the furnace and protect? Couldn't he have just grabbed them and pulled them out? Couldn't he have, or, or even easier yet, couldn't he have just said over Nebuchadnezzar, don't you dare throw these guys in the furnace or I'm going to punish you? That would have had the same effect. I, 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 I don't doubt it. How much easier that would have been. But instead, he saves in this way, Nebuchadnezzar says, in this way, not from the furnace. He could have saved them from the furnace, but he doesn't do that. He saves through it and within it. And Nebuchadnezzar, he, he knows of no other God. He says, there's no other God who saves in this way. And I don't know of another one either. Okay, hidden here is the key, I think, to even if faith. You cannot have even if faith in this life unless you know and have seen God in the furnace with you. Have you seen him there? And here's the message of the New Testament. If you have seen Jesus on the cross, if you have seen God in Christ dying for you on a cross, then you have indeed seen God in the furnace. When Jesus prays in the garden, if you're familiar with the story, before he goes to his death, which he knows is coming, he prays, God, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. This is an even if prayer on the lips of the Son of God. But Jesus enters the furnace in that story, and he is completely destroyed. He's consumed. No one comes to his rescue. No one listens to him. No one hears his voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one shows up. He is destroyed so that we know in every furnace of life we are not alone. And in the only furnace of life that truly matters, the judgment of your life, you will not be destroyed because he was on your behalf. 
Daniel 3 teaches us to have even if faith. That's, that's a real application of the story, but we are not saved by that. We are saved by the only God who enters the furnace with you. And in times in exile, when you will be tempted to abandon him. It is so easy in exile to do that. It's so human to do. You can deny him for all the furnaces in your life, and there will be many. And the gods of Babylon or America, or wh- I don't care what you call them, they will promise you in that moment to save you from the furnace. But there is only one God who goes in the furnace with you. There's only one. I know of no other God who saves in this way. Do you? So can you look at your life? Can you look at your loss and your pain and your fear? And I'm not minimizing any of that. Can you look at the uncertainty of your future and say to those things, my God is able to overcome all this and more But even if he doesn't, in my life, even if he doesn't, he is still God, and he is still good, and he is still in control, because he proved it in Jesus Christ, his son. Let's pray to him now. Father, I know there are so many furnaces in this room. I know, spoken, unspoken, shared, unshared, there are hardships and pains and losses and questions and confusions in this room right now and within me. So God, I pray from this story that in the midst of that, wherever we find ourselves, we're tempted to give up, walk away. Through your Holy Spirit, in this moment and through this week, give us eyes to see as we turn And we see Jesus next to us in the furnace and he says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. There's nothing I won't do for you. I'm here with you. It's in his name we pray, amen.